How can the Easter story help churches respond better to sexual violence in its many different forms? That's a question asked by David Toombs, who is the Howard Patterson Chair of Theology and Public Issues at the University of Otago in New Zealand. Toombs has a long-standing interest in contextual and liberation theologies and is author of Latin American Liberation Theologies. His current research focuses on religion, violence, and peacebuilding, and especially on Christian responses to gender-based violence, sexual abuse, and torture. He's originally from the United Kingdom and previously lectured in theology at the University of Roehampton in London, and then on a conflict resolution and reconciliation program in Belfast, Northern Ireland, for the Irish School of Ecumenics at Trinity College, Dublin. In what follows, I speak with David Toombs about his work on faith-based responses to sexual violence. So David, let's start by just telling me about your, um, your project you've been working on here at CTI and religion and violence in general. Maybe we'll get to that later. So my project's looking at faith-based responses to sexual violence, uh, particularly churches I focus on, but I, I'm interested in faiths more generally. And the particular avenue I've taken is to pick up on work I've been doing for quite a long time on crucifixion, but I've revisited particularly in the light of Me Too, and taken the verse from Matthew 25, when did we see you naked? And that's provided an opportunity to look at the stripping and then naked exposure of Jesus, uh, a, a part of the gospel which is well known. We remember it at Easter time as a station of the cross, but it's not given the attention that I think it deserves, and it's not named for what it is. And what it is is sexual abuse. And Me Too has put that firmly on our horizon, I think. And what I want to suggest is that's actually a positive thing for the church. The church can then recognize within its own story and within its own experience, um, Jesus suffering what many victims of sexual abuse say that they have suffered. And that gives a really powerful entry point into a faith-based response to sexual violence. And how did you get interested in this, this topic? So my interest in it came through Latin American liberation theology, which is uh, very much what I was drawn to through all of my theological studies and then in, in my first job in, in London. And as I was looking uh, at El Salvador, I came across a very powerful and troubling story of an execution which used sexual violence. And I wanted to understand two things. I wanted to understand both the act of violence itself and its extremity, but I also wanted to understand the silence around it. Why wasn't this incident picked up and discussed in the work of theology and particularly in the work of the liberation theologians who I admired and felt had very powerful insights into political violence, but didn't give detailed attention to this. So that set me on a course of studying in more careful detail torture reports, human rights reports, a lot of amnesty and human rights watch reports, uh, truth commission reports from Latin America particularly, and then using those to generate questions to go to the gospels with and to think of crucifixion as a form of torture, which is not a particularly unusual idea. You'll find the idea that crucifixion was torture in quite a lot of the literature, but the idea that you'd then 
use torture reports to get a deeper understanding of what might be involved was unusual. And one of the connections I made is in torture reports, almost always there are forms of sexual violence, different forms of sexual violence used in torture. And therefore to read the crucifixion narratives with that in mind, the stripping of Jesus jumps out. In fact, what I've been doing this year as part of the project is a Bible reading study on Mark, 6, Mark 15, 16 to 24. And there in just eight verses, we can see Jesus is stripped three times. But typically people will only notice it happen once. And then after noticing how often it happens, noticing that it seems to be organized, we then talk in the group about, well, what do we call that? And people have different answers to that. And that's all part of the process. But for me and most of the people I talk to, naming it as sexual abuse is one of the most important insights there can be on that passage. And what you just alluded to there is, you, you know, this isn't a purely academic uh, conversation for you. You're working with churches in, in New Zealand where you live now. I know you're originally from the UK, but you're teaching in Otago, New Zealand. Uh, now, you, say more about that, the, the project and how you've sort of develop this to be to be used in congregations mm. so th this is a really exciting three-year project i've been working on um, i work particularly in new zealand work with churches if if they invite me and that's uh, always a good thing to do but also work with another new zealand colleague who's originally from peru and she's carrying out interviews with male survivors of sexual abuse in peru to see how they respond to this idea Next year, we hope to do uh, work with South African colleagues to develop a more extensive contextual Bible study around this issue. And one of the most encouraging things about this is um, it, it can be quite disturbing confronting issues, but often people do tell positive stories. So just recently, while I've been here in the US, somebody who heard uh, the paper that I gave on it at Society of Biblical Literature told me that when she was abused she could not believe that God could imagine her shame and in the light of the paper I presented she saw that very differently and I think that's a, a really generous thing for her to have shared because I think it shows the transformative power of engaging with painful and difficult issues but seeing actually these are not things that God could not imagine but God can fully imagine and understand these experiences. And there's no reason at all that victims should feel isolated by what happened to them or in any way abandoned by God. One of the questions I usually ask at this point is how do you interact with the, the question, the broader question of religion and violence? But in some sense, yours is all about religion and violence because you're talking about these theological questions and how even within the biblical stories, we have this uh, question of sexual violence coming up, and not only in the biblical stories, but specifically surrounding crucifixion of Jesus. So, yeah, I still, I guess I would ask, you know, as a theologian, do you have a sort of distinctive way that you, that you want to approach this question? Um, I suppose almost everything I do is shaped by liberation theology in its different forms. So uh, I... I think theology cannot escape the difficult questions around religion. You, one cannot offer a rose-tinted, over-optimistic view that religion is always the positive answer and never part of the problem. Re religion is very often part 
of the problem and the time I spent living and working in Northern Ireland brought that home very strongly but it also brought home that precisely because religion is often part of the problem it needs to be part of a solution there's a very naive approach sometimes that people take that we can address the solution better if we bracket religion out of it or if we ignore religion it's precisely because religion is often part of the problem and has a negative influence that it needs to be firmly addressed if it's going to be part of of solution so the uh, the ambivalence or ambiguity of religion i think has to be recognized the fact that it is often a problem but it almost always and precisely because of that has scope to be part of a transformative solution maybe say a bit more double back and say a bit more about what you learned in Northern Ireland, I wanted to, to tease that out. I, I know, like I said, you taught in, in the UK, uh, in, in England, and then you eventually went to Northern Ireland before you went to New Zealand. I know that was a very transformative time. Yeah, it, it really was. And I, I learned a lot both in the work and, and in wider life and participating in the Corrymeela community of reconciliation and, and different things from each of those experiences. I suppose in terms of work life, working for the Irish School of Ecumenics, part of Trinity College Dublin, it was an opportunity to focus on reconciliation. It was a master's program teaching on reconciliation in the aftermath of conflict, particularly conflicts where religion had been part of the conflict. And learned many things there, both about now, both about Northern Ireland and other places, but in particular, how people tend to separate themselves out from being part of the problem. They tend to see others as the problem. There's a very consistent othering process, and part of the othering process is the problem rests with the others rather than with you. One of the things Cory Miller insisted on is you have to see yourself as part of the problem as well. The problem is not outside you, you are included in the problem and until you start understanding that you're not going to have an honest answer to the problem. Um, so that that was very significant not just as it were intellectually but at, but at a personal level to confront your own complicity in the problems rather than just seeing it as all about other people and by that complicity do you mean because you yourself you know came from the uk or do you mean just as a person living in northern ireland or, or it, it, it would be both so yeah. um it it would be anyone living in northern ireland for any length of time gets drawn into the problems there there's no way you can keep yourself separate from it People coming from another part of the UK, such as myself, coming from London, get drawn in in a particular way. Um, people coming from the Republic of Ireland would get drawn in a particular way. People who were born and raised and their family has been in Northern Ireland the whole time get drawn in a particular way. So it, it's the recognition that if, if you're part of life there, you do get drawn into the process of sectarianism, even if you don't wish to be. And even if in some ways you're trying to push back against it, trying to transform it, still on a daily basis, you're being sucked in to a process which is beyond your your control. It's, it's by no means fully your responsibility. Uh, it originated outside itself, it originated before you, but there's no uh, value neutral place that you can separate yourself out to and then look at others from it. You've actually become part of the problem your, yourself at the very same time that you're trying to understand it more deeply 
and find ways to change and transform it. I've also had conversations with your colleagues, Lisa LaRue and Louise DeToit, among others. And I know you and Lisa and Louise are working on a joint project. I thought maybe you could tell me a bit about that. Yeah, this has been a real highlight of, of the time here. I've admired Lisa's work for a very long time, and it was great to get to know Louise's work through this process. So we're working on a joint project, all of us uh, looking at sexual violence in different ways, but collaborating particularly on a feminist understanding of male victims uh, and particularly male victims of sexual violence. One of the really significant developments over the last 25 years or so is female victims have rightly received increasing attention and there's much more awareness of sexual violence against female victims in different formats. And then more recently, male victims have started to get more attention, and this has created a number of debates, both practical debates around resourcing, but also more analytic debates around understanding um, what are the similarities and differences between male and female victims and between forms of sexual violence against the two, uh, what do we know about the numbers and the prevalence, the frequency, different forms it, it might take, uh, all um, important questions that need to be explored. And one of the things we're doing together is trying to look into those questions, offer some analysis that might help towards uh, an understanding of male victims that doesn't displace attention uh, to, to female victims, but allows people to see appropriate connections between the two. One of the really profound things I heard you say at one point this semester was in reference to how difficult this conversation actually is to have. I mean, it's a conversation people don't really want to talk about, you know, <laughs> they feel uncomfortable with it. And uh, there's a certain there's also this level of shame involved, which I think the one way you put it was almost like that shame radiates out and other people get kind of almost touched by it and so that, that therefore they want to just not talk about it at all. I don't know if you could speak more to that. Yeah, I, I think it is a, a recognized process that shame or stigma transfer outwards. So so just talking about a deeply shameful or stigmatizing event draws shame or stigma upon yourself. Uh, there's a perception then it's it's not fully conscious most people would recognize this shouldn't be the case but nonetheless somebody talking about sexual violence is uh readily seen not by everyone but by many people as as doing something which is is difficult to hear difficult to engage with and best left alone and that, that's as it were a form of the shame and stigma at work now now most people if they thought about it, would check that and say that that surely can't be right. We should be able to have proper conversations. In fact, we need to have the conversations. But part of that is recognizing that many people will come into those conversations feeling uncomfortable, feeling difficult. And one of the nicer things that's been said about my work um, after a presentation was you're giving us the language to have these conversations. Previously, we, we as a church wouldn't have known quite what to do with this. And you've given us a way of thinking about it in a way that doesn't make us immediately uncomfortable and want to go silent. We, we want to have this conversation and to understand it in new ways. Yeah, so I think as a final question, David, I mean, I think that's that's really profound, uh, is just to ask, 
how how has the the cohort here at CTI influenced the way you're doing your project? Have, have you changed your mind on certain things or found certain new resources you're wanting to work with and so on? It, it's been a wonderful experience, partly because of the wide variety of, of people. It's no surprise that Lisa and Louise have taught me so much in the process and I've got a lot from them but it's been fantastic to talk to Ephraim Mayer for his insistence that I pay attention to Psalm 22 that it's all there in Psalm 22 uh, has has been wonderful it's been really interesting to talk to Hannah Stroman about the reception of this and to think more carefully about how I should probably be looking at how people receive these ideas but it's not just the ideas themselves it's the reception of it that's that's important um, it's been wonderful to go back to a focus on transformative reconciliation with Anti uh, and of course with Ed and his focus on judges that brings the the difficult issue of religiously sanctioned violence um, fully to the to the fore in these conversations so some of the questions that people might ask me um, about well what what is it saying about crucifixion in terms of God in relation to this are questions that can also be be asked about work that he's doing and others are doing in this area so it's just been fascinating to hear the different perspectives that everyone offers and see the connections that they're able to to make to the work that I'm doing. David Toombs, thanks for being on the podcast and for talking to me and for being a part of this interesting conversation uh, throughout the semester. Thanks for having me. To learn more about CTI, visit our website at ctinquiry.org and follow our pages on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and leave us a review.